You know, it's a real privilege to share God's word with you today at the start of Holy Week. Uh, In the Bible, Holy Week started on Palm Sunday, and that's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And the people shouted, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna means save us, save us. And that is exactly what Jesus was going to do, just not in the way that they had expected. Now, this week is also called Passion Week. So it's called Holy Week, but it's also called Passion Week because it's a time where we remember the trials and the sufferings that our Lord and Savior Jesus went through leading up to his crucifixion. So I just wanna pray, Father, we just thank you for this time where we can spend in your word and we can, we can look at you, Father, and we can look at you, Jesus, and we can look at you, Holy Spirit, and we can marvel again at the fact that we serve the living God. Father, I pray that this word will accomplish that which you wanted to accomplish, that it will fall on fertile, fertile soil and produce a harvest a hundredfold. But Father, I also want to ask, Lord, that this message will prepare each one of our hearts for this week that lies ahead as we, as we really ponder on what you did for us, Jesus, and as our hearts are filled with gratitude afresh. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the title of today's message is What Jesus Values, What Jesus Values. But before I get into the message, please turn with me to Psalm 40, and I'm just gonna read the first three verses of Psalm 40 from the New International Version. Psalm 40. It's a Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Can I invite you to think of a time when the Lord rescued you, a time where you cried out to God for help and he reached down and he rescued you out of that situation and put you on a solid rock. Perhaps uh, you are thinking at the moment of the time you got saved. You can remember your Uh, BC days before Christ and some of the things that you were involved in and you you just go, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for rescuing me out of those things and putting me in your kingdom. Some of you may be thinking about a real trial that you went through, a very, very difficult time in your life where you cried out to the Lord, you cried out to him and he's brought you out of that trial and your heart is full of praise. You know, the Lord puts a new song in our mouths when he rescues us. If I had to think of these three verses of Psalm 40, and I used an acronym for God, it would be G-O-D, God, our deliverer, because that is what he is. Now, as mentioned, the title of today's message is What Jesus Values, What Jesus Values. And if you want to get to know what a person values, 
you need to spend time with them. You need to have a meal with that person and a conversation with them. And very soon you will see what they care about, what they're passionate about, what causes their heart to beat. Now as we read the Gospels, we get to know what Jesus valued. We get to see who he spent time with and we eavesdrop in on his sermons. You know, you can open your Bible, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and you can picture yourself there. We can be there. We, we can imagine hearing him preach these words, telling us about his kingdom. But it's, it's, it's at times in people's lives when they're going through a really difficult time that you really, really get to know their values. And it's in the last week of Jesus' life during his trials that his values shine forth and become a role model to us. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 53, and we're gonna reflect on Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Once again, I'm gonna be reading from the New International Version. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 53. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. So it was a place they went to quite often, the Garden of Gethsemane, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Have you seen that before? An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Now I would like to share two extracts from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John from their accounts of the same story. Uh, you don't need to turn there. These verses will be on the screen. The first one is Matthew 26, verse 52 to 54. 
Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Family, let me tell you that the one angel that came and ministered to Jesus would have been sufficient to deal with that mob that came to arrest him. Just that one angel. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And then in John 18, verse four to nine, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is the king of kings. And they experienced his authority and they fell on their faces before him. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. We thank the Lord for his word. Amen. I'll be sharing three points with you this morning and uh, three points that highlight what Jesus values. And the first point is a world worth saving. A world worth saving. Perhaps the most striking part of the text that we have just read are these words in verse 42, where Jesus prays. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful that our heavenly Father saw a world worth saving. And that saving the world was Jesus' mission. It's why he came. We all know John 3 verse 16, but in John 3 verse 17 we read, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God wanted to reach down. He wanted to pick us up out of that slimy, miry clay and put us up on the solid rock. I read a book the other day, and in it the author said something that I've never, ever, never, ever heard before. He said that the Bible should have ended after Genesis chapter 2. Have any of you heard that? <laughs> uh, you see, because by that point, um, God had created a very beautiful planet. He had made man in his image. He had formed Eve out of Adam's ribs so that Adam would not be alone. They'd have companionship. And uh, there was righteousness, peace, and joy in the garden. Now, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there in the garden is righteousness, peace, and joy. There's perfect fellowship between God, man, and the creation he had made. Perfect worlds. You know, sometimes we can look at our fallen, sinful, groaning world and forget that creation didn't start with a problem. It started with a foundation of goodness. 
Genesis 1 verse 31 tells us that God saw all that he had made and it was very, very good. Our Bibles don't open with original sin. They open with original blessing. Original blessing, the favor of the Lord. Genesis 1 verse 28 says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I spoke to a congregation member uh, this past week, and she was wrestling with the brokenness of our world, and she said this to me. She said, I just can't understand how some people can be so mean. I just can't understand how some people can be so mean. You know, I was reading News 24 the other day, and there was a small little article about a man on a plane, uh, and a lady got on, and she had booked late, and she had her toddler with her, and unfortunately, her and the toddler, the seats were not next to each other, so she went to this man and said, listen, can you move just so that I can sit next to my toddler? And he said, no. And, and uh, when asked why, he said, it's not my problem. You know, you can't imagine that in a way. And yet sometimes we see a world uh, that is really fallen. I can't understand how some people can be so mean. Is there anyone else here that feels that way? And this is where we need to go right back to Genesis chapter three, to the fall of man. Because we all know the story of how Satan tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He used his, I call it an infamous cocktail, of doubt and desire. So if you ever experience any of these two, you know the enemy's working, okay? Because he is called the accuser of the brethren, he is the tempter. And so in terms of doubt, he planted a seed of doubt with Eve. He says, if you eat that fruit, you won't surely die. Can you hear the doubt? You won't surely die. And then he fueled it with a, an unnatural desire. And he said, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, the father didn't want Adam and Eve to be like God and to know good and evil. He didn't want that. He had created them with a very, very beautiful innocence. You know, the last verse in Genesis chapter two, the last verse before the fall in Genesis chapter three is, as, is the following. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It was just innocence in the garden. No shame, no sin, no brokenness. At the fall, original innocence was lost and all people from that point onwards have been born with a sin nature. And this is why some people in the world can be so mean. There's a sin nature. And it's from this sin nature that every one of us needs to be saved. Listen to what Billy Graham says about this. Our greatest problem is not bombs, war machines, or political philosophies. The biggest threat to the peace and security of the world in this hour is human nature. 
He continues and says, Jesus was not concerned with a political revolution because he knew that a change in government did not mean a change of hearts. Sin presents itself in the mind, manifests itself in word and deed, and is hidden in the heart of everyone. All the distress, bitterness, heartache, shame, and tragedy can be summed up in the three-letter word sin. The Bible says that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Sin has crippled human nature, but God has provided the cure. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. As I read this in the first service, I had this overwhelming sense that for some people, that is the sentence you needed to hear this morning, that one sentence. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've been through, there is not one sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. And that's good news indeed for a culture that still doesn't know what to do with sin. Can you see what Jesus was facing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was facing the full magnitude of the sin nature. This was the cup that caused him such great anguish that he sweated drops of blood. This was the cup that he asked the Father to take from him. And the Father had to answer and say, I can't, I can't take it away. My eternal purpose was for this very moment. Jesus knew this. He knew that saving the world would involve the shedding of his very own blood. He knew that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Jesus knew that he was about to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse five to six, that says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Henry Blackaby, in his book titled Experiencing the Cross, describes the soul suffering that Jesus experienced in the garden. Here's a quote from his book. I've never seen it quite put like this. He says, Already Jesus was beginning to experience the extinguishing of his light and life as payment for the sin of the world. The inevitable casting into outer darkness that God had warned in Scripture would happen to all who do not believe, a darkness utterly devoid of life and light. This is what was descending upon the soul of our Savior, an outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This was the pathway our Savior walked. He passed the way in our place so that you and I need never walk that way ourselves. How grateful we are to the Lord. You know, in that same book, he was just talking about how even the martyrs, people who have died for their faith, didn't experience the death that Jesus experienced. 
Friends, to summarize uh, point one, uh, today we are pondering on what Jesus values, and at the very top of his list is a world worth saving. I mentioned earlier that today is Palm Sunday, a day where the followers of Jesus longed for him to free them from the oppression of Rome. But Jesus rode humbly into Jerusalem that day on the fall of a donkey because his battle was not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world. His battle was against sin and death, and it was a battle that he won on our behalf. And Lord Jesus, we just give you all the glory and all the praise, and we thank you for what you did. We thank you that you were willing to lay down your life. Lord, where would we be if you hadn't come to earth? Where would we be? We would be lost in our sin. We would have no hope. But because you came, Lord, and because you won that battle, Lord, our sin nature has been dealt with. We have been set free from it. And we can be called children of God. We give you all the glory and praise. Amen. My second point is about an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. You see, Jesus not only saved the world from sin and death, but he taught us a whole new way of living, like a whole new way. It's called the upside-down kingdom because Jesus literally turned the world upside-down with his teachings. He said strange things like, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He said, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then he said, you have heard that it is said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And if you think about it, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is exactly what Jesus did to Judas and to the mob who came to arrest him. He turned the other cheek. Jesus' values were contrary to the political and to the religious culture of the day. Contrary. Look at the religious side, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they prided themselves in their self-righteous keeping of the law. They believed that God accepted those who were devout and that he rejected those who sinned. Rejected. So they referred to the following people as outcasts and they would avoid them at all costs. The poor, the sick, the lepers, not to mention the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the demon-possessed. The religious leaders wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus, he turned this upside down because these are the very, very people that he spent time with. It's incredible. He showed us a new value system. Mark chapter two, verse 15 to 17 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, we all know Levi as Matthew the tax collector, that's Levi. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
So if you had to be in the crowd following Jesus, there would have been ex-lepers, ex-blind people, ex-lame people, ex-prostitutes, ex-tax collectors, and possibly a whole bunch of those people still struggling in their sin about to come to salvation. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you realize that by eating with them, Jesus made himself an outcast in the religious leader's eyes? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, we need to examine our hearts and pray that love and compassion will be found here, especially towards sinful, broken humanity, especially towards some of those mean people in the world. Think for a moment of the people that you would view as outcasts in society today. Who would they be? If Jesus was here on earth, could it be maybe that he would be going to their home for lunch this afternoon? Because he would want to save them too. You know, Jesus also came head to head with the value system of Rome. Because in a nutshell, Rome was about the following. The culture or the value system of Rome was pride, the empire, power and position, self-centeredness, materialism and greed, independence. They had no real place for God. They had a number of gods, but those gods were just to serve their selfishness. So they weren't really dependent on any God. Harshness and cruelty. I'm sure you can see that it wasn't just ancient Rome, if you look at that list, uh, that demonstrates these values. You will find these values present in any country, city, government, business, organization, family that rejects the upside down kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only rejects, you'll actually find some of those even where Jesus' values are just neglected, not even rejected, because these values have, have crept into the hearts and marriages as, and, and, and even into the families of many Christ followers. So you look at that and you go, is there hope for us? Is there hope for us? Well, of course there is, because Jesus offers us a value system that is far, far superior. I think sometimes this is part of the solid rock on which he puts us when he rescues us. He, he offers us another kingdom, another way of living. The values of the kingdom of God are humility, servanthood, compassion, generosity, faith, and mercy and forgiveness. I mean, these are so beautiful what the Lord offers us. And he lived these out. Jesus lived these out. If you think about humility, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what Philippians tells us. In terms of servanthood, can you remember how Jesus, the Son of God, 
washed his disciples' feet. He wasn't into position and power. He was into servant leadership. You look at compassion, throughout the Gospels, you keep reading, and Jesus was moved with compassion, and he raised the widow uh, from Nain. He, he raised her son from the dead. Or he was moved with compassion and he healed the blind person. Or he was moved with compassion and he said to the leper, be cleansed. Just from compassion, we see Jesus moving. In terms of generosity, in Luke 6, verse 38, these are the words of Jesus. He's the one that says, give, and it will be given to you. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, for me, one of the best examples of generosity is the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. Because here we have someone who was generous, and not just with money, but with his time, and with his energy, and with his efforts. Because firstly, the Good Samaritan came across someone who had been robbed and was in need, and he stopped whatever he was doing. He gave his time to take this person to a place of safety. Generosity number one. Then he um, used his own ointments to make sure that his uh, wounds were dealt with. Generosity number two. And then he paid the innkeeper and said, if there's any more expenses, just let me know and I'll pay them. And so here we see generosity the value of generosity shared by Jesus in the example of the Good Samaritan. In terms of faith, um, Jesus didn't value independence. He was completely dependent on his father. He only did what the father told him to do. And he knew that if he laid down his life and drank that cup, he had faith that the father would raise him up. You know, Jesus' faith was so contagious that the people who followed him, it sort of filtered over to him, to them. And so that's why when we read the Bible and we're reading about Jesus and his faith, faith rises up and we say, Lord, do it for me, do it for me. You know, that is, uh, it's a beautiful thing how faith, the faith of Jesus is, is catchy. And we see the woman with the issue of blood and she's like, all I need to do is get through this crowd. I just need to like, touch the hem of his garment, and if I do that, I know I will be healed. And she touches him, and she's healed. Faith is a value of the kingdom of God. And then mercy and forgiveness. If you just think of the parable of the prodigal son and the mercy and the forgiveness um, that he received from his gracious father. I mean, he had, he had really lived in the world, and he came back and uh, that parable just tells us about a father that says, there's mercy available for you, there's forgiveness available for you, come home. So let's contrast these two values. The world values pride. The kingdom of God values humility. The world values power and position. The kingdom of God values servanthood. The world values self-centeredness, and the kingdom of God values compassion. The, the world values materialism and greed, and the kingdom of God values generosity. The world values independence, and the kingdom of God values faith. The world values harshness and cruelty, and the kingdom of God values mercy and forgiveness. Take a moment to look at these two lists, and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Does the Holy Spirit speak to me? Have a look at those lists. What is he highlighting in your life? Which of those things is he highlighting? What is he saying to you right now? Because Jesus valued the list on the right. And because of his love and compassion for us, he longs for us to adopt these values too. One way that we can do this is to keep studying the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Just 
every week you should be reading the Gospels. Even if you're reading other reading plans, just be reading the Gospels, reading about Jesus, looking at what he said, what he did, who he spent time with, and how he responded in situations. So that's one way we can continually refresh ourselves with the kingdom values. Another way is to rely on the Holy Spirit because he can help us to live out those values. And I'm gonna touch on that in point three in a moment's time. Before I get to point three though, let's quickly go back to the Garden of Gethsemane because as I mentioned, this was a time of great, great anguish for the Lord. In Matthew 26, verse 38, uh, he said to his disciples, Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can you get the magnitude of that? I mean, I've been through some difficult times in my life, but I've never, ever experienced a sorrow like this. Yet even at this very vulnerable time, Jesus lives out his kingdom values. I'm gonna highlight just one, the value of compassion. Firstly, Jesus shows compassion to his disciples by urging them to watch and pray. He knew that he was gonna be crucified and that when he was crucified, their faith would be shaken. And he's saying, guys, you need to watch, you need to pray. Let me tell you, trauma and loss can shake the foundations of your faith. Speak to anyone who has lost a loved one unexpectedly. Sometimes the confusion is so great that they struggle even to pray. And Jesus is just saying, keep praying, keep praying, keep talking to my Father, keep talking to me, I'm with you, just keep talking, just keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, so that your faith can stand. Shows compassion to them. The second thing that he does is he protects them. So the mob comes, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he, let these men go. It's in his darkest hour, and he's thinking about them. It's incredible. And then maybe to up or to another level, Jesus reaches out and touches and heals the ear of the high priest's servant after it had been sliced off by Peter. I mean, he looked past all the drama that was happening to a person who needed a touch of healing, and he showed him compassion. It's incredible, incredible. Can you think of someone in your life that needs your compassion? Someone who needs you to reach out to them with grace and kindness today? Perhaps it's your spouse or one of your children. Maybe it's a difficult boss or colleague. It could be even someone who has betrayed you or hurt you in your life, who's in need of your compassion. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 43 to 44, as he shares his upside down kingdom with us and calls us to compassion. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in John 13, verse 34 to 35, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you adopt my values. The last point is a brief one. I'm slightly over time, so bear with me. Uh, it's called changed from within. Changed from within. This is an important point because we need the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside if we are to live out the values in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. 
He needs to do it from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 18 in the New Living Translation is a phenomenal verse, and it says this. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit. Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. What this verse is explaining is the process of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. After we've been born again and our sin nature has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus, that's point one, then the Spirit of God begins to work in our hearts and minds to make us more and more like Him. He convicts us when we are proud. He chips away at our selfishness. He gives us a check in our spirits when we get caught up with power and money. And he points out those hard areas in our hearts where bitterness and unforgiveness dwell. He doesn't do these things to judge us. He does them to help us. All we need to do is to welcome the Holy Spirit and yield to his working in our lives. When we do this, the values of our Lord's upside-down kingdom will become ours. And day by day, we will walk with greater humility, compassion, faith, and mercy. This, friends, is the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10, verse 10. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you, Jesus, for your example. That in your darkest hour, you showed compassion. Jesus, we thank you that you taught us about an upside-down kingdom. And uh, we want your values to be ours. And Holy Spirit, we invite you, even now, to come and work in our hearts and lives. We pray that the rest of this day and the rest of this week, as we anticipate Easter coming, Lord, that we will just allow you to do a work. And we, we want to become more like Jesus in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. But Father, at the very start, we just spoke about how you loved the world so much that you gave your only son, Jesus, so that we will not perish but have everlasting life if we believe. And uh, Jesus, we thank you that you saw a world worth saving, that you valued a world worth saving. Each one of us have tasted salvation. And we take a moment now to lift up the unsaved people in our nation, Lord. Uh, in all spheres of government and business and social class, Lord God, wherever they may be, those who are lost in their sin, Father, we pray for revival in our nation. nation. We pray, Father, that you will open their hearts to who you are, to the good news, that they will believe and that they will be changed. It's our prayer, Lord. Now, Father, I pray over this congregation, our church family. I ask that you will bless them and keep them, that you'll turn your face towards them and be gracious to them that you'll lift up the light of your countenance upon them and give them your peace. In Jesus' name we pray.